0: Right on so last couple chapters of the book of Esther this morning let's set the table for that a little bit and just recall where we've been and what's happened in this story. We recall that years earlier probably about five years earlier if you think about where we're at in the story that Mordecai had saved the king's life that there'd been this plot against King Ahasuerus to take his life and it was during a sleepless night that the king came to realize that he had never personally acknowledged the work of the savior in his life. And it must have brought Esther, I imagine, just great joy when she watched her husband come to the realization that he had not acknowledged the work of the savior and that he that he owed a, a debt to him. And so we saw in previous weeks that King Ahasuerus acknowledged the work of Mordecai. He honored him. And then Esther took on the task of revealing the truth about the enemy. And how the enemy had manipulated the king. And Haman was exposed. Uh, His plot was revealed. He was revealed for the murderous man that he was. And as we saw, and as I think you can read between the lines, the, the, king, was, the, the king was truly su- surprised to realize what had been happening in his life, and his kingdom. Um, and the blinders came off, and he saw the truth regarding who the enemy really was. And so Haman was executed, hanged on the gallows, hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, uh, poetic justice, divine justice, um, and, and a neat picture in the sense that, a spiritual picture that God's only answer for the enemy is the gallows. Or the cross, I would say. Not just any cross, the cross of Jesus Christ. King Ahasuerus had at one time, I want to touch my wedding ring when I say this. Taken the signet ring um, And given that ring to to Haman. And Haman had exercised authority over all of the kingdom. Exercised authority over all that had belonged to Ahasuerus. But once the king acknowledged the work of the savior. And the enemy was exposed and executed. The king took the signet ring and he gave it to Mordecai. As we saw last week. And in fact all that had belonged to Haman. Or all that was under his authority. Was given to Mordecai. And where once the enemy had ruled, now the Savior ruled. What a great picture, right? And I can't help but see those parallels in our lives as well. Christ died for us. But we continued to hand over. He, 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 he made an effort to save us and yet we in our lives, before acknowledging that, that saving work, continued to hand over the authority of our lives to the evil one. Until we acknowledged the work of the Savior, Jesus Christ. Until we acknowledged our debt to him and our debt to the work of the cross. And it's when we acknowledged Jesus Christ as Savior, when we acknowledged him as the Lord of our lives, that all of the sudden the blinders came off and we thought, Oh, I've been under the thumb of this other evil one. I handed over, in a sense, the authority of my life to him. I gave him the signet ring. He essentially had control of the throne of my life. And I never realized the great, the great power that he wield o- wielded over me until I surrendered to the Savior, Jesus. And then we said, oh, God, I don't want the evil one to have authority in my life. Uh, I, I want you to function with all authority. I want you to have the signet ring. I want you, Jesus, to sit on the throne of my life. And where once the enemy ruled in us, now the savior, Jesus, rules. You know in Persia, when Mordecai was given this new position, given the authority, raised to this position of power amongst the kingdom, the people in the kingdom began to notice a difference. We read this in the story, we're gonna read it this morning. The kingdom was under new management, under new authority, just like our lives. You know, when Jesus came and took took up residence and we were born again and we were made a new creation and he began to rule and our lives became his throne and his temple and he wore the signet ring and the sign went up under new management, people began to notice a difference. And it was changed for the better, it was changed for good change for God. In the kingdom of Persia this decree of doom is still hanging over the kingdom. The enemy had a plan to destroy the people of God but now there is a decree of grace that has been proclaimed. And where the people believed the decree that Mordecai had, had written, uh, the one that superseded the decree of Haman, there was, there was great joy. And the same is true in our lives again. You know, if we just think of some of the spiritual parallels, when we come to recognize that the enemy's plan to destroy us has been defeated and that the Savior has issued on our behalf a decree of grace, and when we put our faith in the Savior of the world, the result is great joy. Joy in our lives. You know, as the scripture says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Happy are those whose people that God, God is the Lord. Happy are the people whose God is the Lord. You know, I think, man, what a crime that I ever have a sad face as a Christian. Why sad face, Christian? Put your hope in God. Recount his grace. Thank the Lord for his kindness, for his faithfulness, for his saving work. Remember from where he has brought you, from whence he has brought you. And in the kingdom of Persia, there was great joy. We read at the end of chapter 8, it says this in verse 16 and 17. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reach, there was gladness and there was joy among the Jews. A feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. See, wherever the decree was proclaimed, we talked last week about being swift steeds proclaiming the the decree of grace. Wherever the decree of grace was proclaimed, there was an impact and the Savior's rule was felt as people put their faith in the word that was proclaimed to them. Many people, we read there at the end of chapter eight, sought to become one with the people of God, to count themselves amongst the Jews, the Jews, and and the people of God were filled with joy, and they were filled with joy as they put their faith in a written word that was proclaimed to them. You know, the thirteenth of Adar, that day of doom that had been decreed, was was still on the calendar. It still hung over their heads. But the people put their faith in the new decree and they were given hope in the midst of this old decree. And faith in the written word of God gives us hope. You know, I think of it, there's a decree of doom still hanging over my head. But in faith, as I put my faith in Jesus, I can look forward and say, death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? Don't you know, Death, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord? There's no fear in the decree of doom. And we walk by faith and not by sight. And Mordecai and Esther and the people of God in this story were not, they were not counting on a passing emotion. They had not put their hope in a feeling. They were not playing a hunch. Uh, they were assured that they would not be destroyed. What an awesome thing that is, to be assured that you will not be destroyed. They put their faith in the word of God. They wiped the tears from their eyes. Their sorrows were soothed with the word of God. So let me ask you something this morning. Are you assured that you will not be destroyed? Do you know it? by faith, take hold of the word of God. We don't trust feelings that are blown to and fro like the wind. We don't trust the unbalanced scale of our good works. We can be freed from the bondage of religion and we can take God at his word. We rest on the word and the word of God is a foundation for our lives that cannot be shaken. It's the rock upon which we build our lives. Faith in the word of God. And what happens is, is as we put our faith in the written word, leading us to the living word, Jesus Christ, we receive assurance from the Lord that we will not be destroyed. That Jesus Christ is our salvation. That the cross is our salvation. And to Jesus we give the signet ring. To Jesus, we surrender authority. To Jesus, we give up the throne of our lives. And when the word of God is believed, and we put our faith and we appropriate it into the son of God, joy and gladness follow. Faith and and peace follow. You know, where we were plagued with uncertainty, where we were plagued with anxiety, where we were... Harassed by fear when we we put our hope in the Lord and our faith in the word of God. Boy, the joy of God comes. You know when Paul, the book of Acts tells us in Acts chapter 13 that when he went to Antioch and began to preach the gospel in the synagogue there, he, he said this in Acts chapter 13 verse 38. He said, let it be known to you, let it be known to you that through this man Jesus Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything. And on that we find rest. To believe in the man Jesus. He died for us and we trust him. Romans chapter five, verse one and say, one and two says this, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have obtained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We stand in the decree of grace. We come to chapter nine and it says this in verse one. Now in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in the cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them. For the fear of them had fallen on all the peoples. So the day arrived, the the 13th day of the month of Adar, the day that had been so dreaded until the decree of grace came. And when that day came, the reverse of all that the enemy had planned actually unfolded. Rather than destruction, it was a day of victory. Rather than a day of defeat, it was a day of triumph for the people of God. And, and they began to discover in their lives that the kingdom was not against them, the kingdom was for them. And what a great thing it is for us to know that, that the kingdom of God is not against us, that the kingdom is for us, that the kingdom is on our side. In verse 3 we read, all of the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews. For the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. I mean, again, we see that the, the throne that once condemned the people of God now protects the people of God. And it's amazing to just consider the change of position for Mordecai. But I'm reminded of what the scripture says. They that honor me, I will honor me. I will honor. You know, those who despise me, they will be lightly esteemed. And we recall Haman, uh, we recall Mordecai and his refusal to to bow to Haman, his refusal to bend the knee to the man who who was an enemy of, of God. Haman was that picture of the man of the flesh. And Mordecai said, I will not bow the knee of my life to the man of the flesh. And the Lord vindicated him. Not only did the Lord vindicate him, but the Lord raised him to the highest position and place of power in the kingdom. And and we read there that it just, the power grew for him. Greater and greater, growing and growing. And and I'm inspired by Mordecai, a man who said, I will not bow the knee of my life to the man of the flesh. And I think what an example for us. I will not bow my life to the desires of the flesh but I will live for the things of the spirit. You know I think of the battle against the flesh, it's, it's, it's tough, we all know that. We, we, we all deal with the appetites of the flesh every day but, but when God is on your side and, and you make that decision, I, I will not bow the knee to the flesh. <laughs> Even when other people look on and say, what's with that guy? How come he doesn't do this? What's with that woman? How come she doesn't participate? In- what's with that person? How come they do, what is with them? When others don't understand, but when, but when we make the decision not to bow to the flesh, that I think the promise of the scripture is that you will be victorious. Eventually, at some point, in his, in his own way and in his own time, God always vindicates his servants. And Mordecai rose to this great place of power in the kingdom and it grew and grew and grew for him. Verse 5 it says, The Jews struck all of their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did as they pleased to those who hated them. How is the enemy defeated in our life? How is Satan and his demonic forces and and powers defeated? And the answer is this, with the sword. With the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The psalmist said, how can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I have hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. You know, my boys, My kids have their favorite stories and the boys love a story from Judges chapter 3. It's a a boy story. It's a messy story. It's the story of Eglon, this evil king who ruled over uh, the people of Israel during the time of the judges. And the story of Eglon was that when God raised up a redeemer and he went, he went and he took a sword and he he plunged it into Eglon and the scripture says that when the sword went in, the filth came, his guts opened up. The, the, the dirt and the filth and the mess came out. And that's what the word of God does. When the sword of the spirit pierces a heart of our lives, it drives out the filth and the dirt. It, it comes out and the enemy is defeated. And the Jews struck down their enemies with the sword. Verse 6 says in, in Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. And also killed, now bear with me, Parshandatha, Dalphon, Aspatha, Poratha, and Adaliah, and Eridatha, and Parmashta. These are great names might find one for one of your kids in here. Erisei, Aradai, and Vizatha. Who are these? Verse 10. The ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemies of the Jews. But note this. They laid no hand on the plunder. So in the capital city, here we read that they, the Jews stuck down, struck down 500 enemies that had risen against them. They also struck down some other enemies, the 10 sons of Haman. It wasn't, and so, you know, just consider this. It wasn't just Haman that went down. His sons went down with him. And that's a scary thought to consider. I mean, when you, you know, consider, you know, often in our lives, when we're dealing with the man of the flesh, we make calculations. What is this going to cost me to participate in this? To ignore what the spirit of God is saying and to follow the desires of my flesh. And we calculate the cost of sin and then we decide okay I think I can handle that cost. I'm going to dive in. But the reality is this is that the cost of sin is always greater than you think it is. Sin has far reaching heartbreaking breaking effects in our lives but not only in our lives Haman's sin manifested itself in the lives of his children. To me that's a, I I hate the thought of that. I hate to even mention that. They didn't die for their father's sin. They they died for their own sin. But the sin of the fathers was found in the sons. What a scary thought. As we think about our own dealing with, with the flesh. But I would say this, I take hope in the fact that Haman, the man of the flesh, was destroyed. One day, the Lord is gonna utterly kill the Amalekite that is in me and in you. He will utterly destroy the working of the flesh. You know, the flesh is still the source and the cause of our failures. And, and our sin, and our sorrows, and, and one day, it will be completely removed, and it will never, ever, ever again, stand in the way of us enjoying God, and experiencing the reality of his presence. But that won't happen on this side of eternity. Uh, until then, we are growing, and we are learning, and we are disciplining the man of the flesh, and we are learning to put him in, His place to say, I won't bow to you, man of the flesh. We're going in that heart. As the Jews struck down their enemies, we read here that they laid no hand on the plunder. In fact, three times we're going to read this in this chapter, that they did not lay their hand on the plunder. Now, according to Esther chapter 8, verse 11, the king Ahasuerus had actually given permission. He said, You wipe out your enemy and take the plunder it's yours you can have everything you can have their possessions and you can take the plunder of your enemies but here we're going to read three times they did not do that they did not profit from this situation you know I'm, i'm reminded of saul who many many years before when god had commanded him to strike down the amalekites when god had commanded him to strike down the amalekite king he had been commanded to completely destroy them And their possessions. To take no spoil from the victory. And we know what happened in the story of Saul. He allowed his army to take from the spoil. He himself took from the spoil. He allowed uh, the king uh, to live. And he disobeyed the word of the Lord. In doing so. And it brought the judgment of God. And eventually his downfall on his own life. The scattered Jews of Esther's time demonstrated greater faithfulness than Saul in this. They were not going to repeat Saul's mistake. They looked back in history and they recognized it. They they overcame the flesh and they were not going to use this victory to have gained financially. A spiritual victory to, to profit financially. And so they laid no hands on the plunder. We read in verse 11 that the very day the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, in Susa the citadel the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? And it shall be granted granted to you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the Jews her in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to, the king, to this day's edict and let the ten, 10 sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. Now as I read that, you know, history actually goes down, it's, it's recorded in Medo-Persian history about Ahasuerus' wife. And now I forget off the top of my head what her name is recorded at in, in history, that she was a vindictive queen, That she ordered the death of many. But we read here in the scripture. We get a better picture of actually what was going on. I I don't believe that this was a desire for massacre. I don't believe that Esther was acting vindictively. But she was asking for another day of opportunity. To meet the enemy that had risen against them. She was asking that her people just be given one more day. To have the right to defend themselves against. Those who fought, uh, sought a, a final solution for the, the Jewish problem. We remember that in, the, in this kingdom, under this decree, this would cost 15 million Jews their lives. And so Esther requested one more day for the opportunity to meet those who would seek their massacre. In verse 14, the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa. The 10 sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa. But again, look, they laid no hands on the plunder. Look, they're not going to enrich themselves at the expense of the Lord's enemy. This is not an opportunity to gain profit. These are acts of self-defense. Verse 16. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's province also gathered to defend their lives and they got relief from their, from their enemies and they killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hand on the plunder. And so throughout the kingdom, throughout the 127 provinces of Ahasuerus, this was a decisive victory for God's people. We don't read that they even lost one amongst them versus the 75,000 of their enemies that were slain. But again, they laid no hand on, uh, on the plunder. This was not for profit. Verse 17. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th day, they rested and they made a day of feasting and gladness But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th day and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. And so they rest on two different days, in the city on the 15th and the rural areas on the 14th. Therefore, the Jews of the village who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. There's great joy because the enemy was defeated in their lives. And the result was feasting, gladness, you know, sending gifts. It sounds like birthday parties, you know. Uh, You know, it sounds like Christmas. And it was gratitude that they were expressing to God in doing so. God had been merciful to them. God had intervened in a plan for their, in a plan that, had been for their destruction. God had turned destruction into victory. He had turned sorrow into joy. And you know, the crazy thing as you go through this, I mean, we've talked about this on various weeks through this series, is that God's name is never mentioned in the book. Not not even here when it talks about the victory over the enemy and the joy and the gladness and the thanksgiving and the feasting and the gift giving that was following. Still, the mention of, of God's name is, is not there. And yet really, it, it was gratitude to God that they were expressing. But I would say this, it's like, it's like when you read this, the silence is kind of deafening. That God's name's not there. God could do it all by the hand of his providence without ever dropping his name into the story. Gra- graciously, he, he watches over them In his providence, graciously he loves them to the end and they rejoice. In verse 20, we read about this feast of Purim being inaugurated. And Mordecai recorded these things and he sent letters to all the Jews who were in the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as days in which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness from mourning into a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and gladness days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts uh, to the poor so they they commemorate these days by inaugurating a feast now there's no reason to even believe here that that this was a holiday instituted by God. I mean, we read in the scriptures about the holidays and the feasts that God instituted. Leviticus chapter 23 records all seven of them. Feasts and holidays that God put into the calendar of his people. You know, things like Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, you know, all these, uh, the Feast of Booths, all these different things. God did not institute this. This was the people of God um, simply saying, we want to rejoice in the fact that God saved us. We want to remember what he did for us. We want to recount it year by year. We want to tell it to our children and we want to tell it to the next generation and we want to commemorate what God did for us. Verse 23, so the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha. The enemy of all the Jews had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pure, that is, cast lots, to crush them and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that this evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term pure. Therefore... Because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail, they would keep those two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year. That these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province and city and that these days of Purim should never uh, fall into disuse amongst the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. And so this feast of Purim, these days of commemoration, were inaugurated to be celebrated every, every year for a couple of days. Now the tradition is this. You know, when these days come on the, on the calendar for the Jewish people, the kids dress up as different characters in the story. You know, some dress up like Mordecai, some dress up like Haman, girls dress up like Esther, and you know, there's dramatic readings of um, the story in places where they gather. And we know what happens. What do they do when Haman's name is mentioned? Boo! And they hiss and they stamp their feet, and the, the kids are given rattles actually, in the they shake the rattles and they curse his name and, and they eat special foods. And we're going to eat some of those cookies tonight. Looking forward to that. And they give gifts to the poor. And yeah, lots of special food is prepared. And, it, and, it's, and it's a time of thanksgiving and joy as they recount the way that God defended them against their enemies. Defeated their enemy. You know, as I just think about this story as a whole... It, you know, we just we learn from it that no wicked plan can ever be carried out against the people of God, against His children, unless He sees fit to allow it. And a story like this reminds us that, that as the New Testament tells us, if God is for us, who can be against us? God, in His providence, always works. On behalf of his people. He works for their benefit. He, he works to lead them to himself and to lead them to the place of victory over their enemy. But you know, as you think about this story, and you, can, you consider it, 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 and God's providence, I would say this. That does not mean that God always sets a rubber stamp of approval over what his children do. There are times when God's people do things that are in direct opposition to his word. When when they say, yeah, I'm not gonna do that, God. Your word says that, I'm gonna do this. And and as his children, they act in rebellion. They act worldly, we act carnally. Maybe we live that way. And you know, as I think about this, There's many Christians who all they know of God is the distant hand of providence. God's always standing in the shadows in my life. I surrendered my life to him. He's there somewhere. You know, the sun came up this morning. Life's pretty good. When I'm in trouble, I called on him. And in his providence, he helps me out. And I think I'll be okay in the end. And I'd say, yeah, I guess things are nice in your life, and maybe things work out without looking to God, but you need to know this about the Lord. The Lord wants to work much more than simply from a place of distant providence in your life. He's given us his spirit as a counselor. He's given us his word so that we would learn to walk by faith in the promises of God. He desires that we would walk with him in relationship. And too often, we just choose the carnal life. We choose to ignore the clear commands of his word. Rather than learning to walk in the joy of fellowship with our Savior. Look, I'd say this. It's wonderful to know that the providence of God is working in the shadows. But how, you know, to know that that he'll catch us when we fall, But, but how much better is it to walk with him day by day? You know, in Psalm 91 it says this, he who dwells in the shelter of the most high will abide in the shadow of the almighty. See, God can stand in the shadows Over there, or I can learn to stand in his shadow. I can learn to abide in the presence of God and walk by faith and not by sight and rely on the leading of the spirit in my life. I'd say this, may we we choose to abide. Verse 29 says, the Queen Esther the daughter of Abihail, remember, father of strength, was Abihail's name. Then Queen Esther, the the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai, the Jew, gave full written authority, confirming the second letter about Purim. I kind of see, as I, I was, you know, this week studying this passage, I kind of see Esther as like the spirit of God, just working. Mordecai as the Savior, a picture of Jesus. Esther. Working on the hearts of confirming the work of the Savior. Look at this. Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the Mordecai, the Jew, gave full written authority confirming the second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth. That these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed the practices of Purim, and it was written, it was recorded in writing. We come to chapter 10, I'm just going to read all of chapter 10 here, just a few verses. King Ahasuerus imposed the tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, And all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus. And he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and he spoke peace to all His people. You know as we wrap up here. We see that that Mordecai. Continued to grow in power. More and more in the kingdom. We we see his influence. We see the way that he governed. governed, uh, For the good of his people. How they found favor. And words of peace in him. And it's important to note. The condition of the kingdom. As Mordecai grew in power. Did you see that in verse 1. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. All of the land and all of the coastlands knew the power of the king. And one day, all of the nations of the earth, one day all of the coastlands of of the world will know the power of God's chosen king, Jesus From sea to sea. He's going to rule. As the scripture says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee bow and every tongue confess. You know, I think about King Ahasuerus. Eventually, he died. Eventually, his kingdom, the the Medo-Persian Empire, was subdued by Alexander the Great. World domination passed into the hands of someone else. But when God's anointed, the king of kings, sits on the throne of this earth, the rule of Jesus will never, ever be superseded by another. And as I say that, you know, I, I have to point this out. There's a common mistake in the church And the mistake is this to believe that the church is the kingdom of God. As the church, we are part of the kingdom. We spread the message of the kingdom. The scripture says that the church is the foundation and pillar of truth. We're the royal steeds sent out into the world. We proclaim the message of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We tell of his coming. We're born into the kingdom, we're made a part of the kingdom, but the church is not the fulfillment of the kingdom. This world's too messy for this to be the fulfillment of the kingdom. The time of God's reign and the rule of the king of kings on earth is not yet begun. And when the Lord Jesus returns, the scripture tells us he will descend from heaven with a loud cry, with the sound of the trumpet, with the voice of the archangel. The church will be completed. The the period of her testimony and witness on the earth will be completed. Her role as the pillar of truth on the earth will be completed. Her rejection on the earth will be completed. The dead in Christ shall rise first, the scripture says, and all who are alive will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so we also will always be with the Lord, the scripture says. And that will be the end of the church age, as it's called. But it won't be the end of the world. Other things will follow that the Bible clearly proclaims. There'll be a seven-year tribulation on the earth that we call the, the great tribulation. That we see in the scripture is called the time of Jacob's trouble. God will once more turn his focus uh, to Israel. They will return to his word. The scripture says that many of them uh, will, will see that because they rejected Jesus as the Messiah, that they were given over to a partial blindness. And the scripture declares that many of them will come to faith in Jesus Christ, and they will acknowledge him as their savior And when the church is raptured and removed from the scene, many of them will will see their great sin. And many of the Jews, like I said, will acknowledge the anointed one, the Messiah, and they will separate themselves from this world and begin to live for him as they wait for his deliverance. And the Bible tells us that one, like Haman, will arise again, the Antichrist, the lawless one, that he'll rise to power in the earth, that he'll work signs and wonders, and that though he has an appearance of a lamb, his speech will betray him, and he will be ungodly and evil and wicked, and yet the ungodly world will follow him. Like Haman, he will persecute, be a persecutor of the Jews. In particular, he will be a persecutor of those who are faithful to Jesus Christ. And just like in the story of Esther, when all seems darkest, when all seems lost, the Lord will appear. The Lord will appear. And he will destroy the power of evil and he will save his remnant and he will establish his kingdom upon the earth. He'll rule in Jerusalem. From sea to sea. All of the nations. They will all serve King Jesus. And the scripture says that he'll rule for a thousand years. And then there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. It's awesome. You know Ahasuerus. His power faded. His kingdom fell. But we serve one. King Jesus. One whose kingdom and and power will never fade, whose rule will never stop. You know, Mordecai and Esther instituted this Feast of Purim as a feast of remembrance uh, for God's people, that they would um, remember that God delivers his people. And you know, God's delivered us. In fact, for us, he's instituted a feast that we're gonna partake in this morning a feast of remembrance, the scripture calls it, the Lord's table, the Lord's supper that reminds us that God has delivered us, that he's delivered us from sin and death through through the savior Jesus. And just like Mordecai desired that the people would not forget God's deliverance, our father in heaven desires that we would never forget the deliverance of his Son that we'd never forget. And so he instituted the Lord's Supper, a time for the church to remember, a time for those who have been saved so that they could come and remember the work of the cross and remember what it was like when the decree of doom hung over their lives and then they discovered grace in Jesus Christ. And so this morning we, we come to the table and we're gonna, Remember the one who has provided such a great salvation for us. Doom was impending. But God has turned that to a victory. Oh, death, where is thy sting? And God wants us never to forget what Jesus did for us. And so today we're going to come to the table and we're going to remember. I'm going to invite Murray to Beth to come and I'm going to ask you to stand and let's pray. And then as your hearts are prepared, and you've taken some time just to remember the work of Jesus and how he saved you, I invite you just to come to the table and receive the the cup and the bread, and we'll partake of communion together this morning. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are a deliverer. God, you work always in your providence on behalf of your people standing in the shadows of our lives. But God, I pray that as we conclude this book of Esther this morning, that we would be challenged, Lord, not to have you in the shadows, but rather that we would abide in your shadow, that we would dwell in the shelter of the Most High, that we would learn day by day to walk with you, that we would commune with you through the word and through prayer, That we'd learn to hear the voice of your spirit, Jesus. Your promptings, your leadings. Jesus, today, as we consider the the story of Esther, once again, just surrender the signet ring, the throne of our lives, the, the rule of us to you. Lord, rule, reign in us. Fill us with your spirit and lead us day by day, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.